where we are this morning, First Thessalonians chapter four. Um, e- each of us who I think, if you've gone to school for any any anything, whether that be elementary school, junior high, high school, you've been asked the question before. What do you want to do with your life, right? You're in elementary school. People, uh, your teachers would say, hey, go ahead and choose what you want to do with your life. The difference is a lot of those things we would choose often were probably unrealistic, right? When I was in the sixth grade, um, I, we got asked, we want you to put down what you want to do for the rest of your life, and it's going to be in the yearbook. So my sixth grade yearbook it has everybody in there. People are saying, I want to be, you know, a doctor. I want to be a vet. I want to be um, whatever other people want to be. And then it says, Adrian Early, it says, I want to be a professional football player. Okay? Now, y'all, y'all laugh because you look at me now and say, yeah, yeah, that, that would have never worked. See, I still thought in the sixth grade, I thought, man, that could still happen. Right? Because you don't really have a sense of, of, of like, realism to that point. Until I went, uh, I was about in the eighth grade, and I went to my first college football game, if you want to call it that. It was Duke against Wake Forest. Uh, and I went there and watched that game, and it was at that moment I realized I would never be a professional football player. So what happened in the eighth grade? All of a sudden, I turned, and what I wanted for my life was I wanted to be a professional golfer. Okay? So it went from professional football to professional golf because I, lo- I still love to play golf, but uh, not really good at it, but love to go play. And, I- and that-, that, was, like, that was my dream. Right? I wanted for my life to go be a professional athlete of some sort. Now, each of you have, have probably had this, had this question before, like, what do you want to do with your life? Some of you are still like, look, man, I've, I'm already retired and I'm still figuring out what I want to do with my life. But at some point, you've been asked that question. And, and for, for you parents, like, you, you have something for your kid that you want. You want something for their life. You have a desire for their life. You want uh, their life to be good. You want them to have a good career. You want them to have a, a good marriage. You want them to have a good family. You have a desire for their life. And this morning in our text, we discover not uh, our parents' desire for our life, but we find out the life God wants for us. We see that uh, in this text, we find out what pleases God and we see the life God wants for us. We're going to see two truths this morning in our, in our text in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, that show us what God wants for our lives. So the first one is this. We'll go ahead and get started. The life God wants for you is marked by spirit-driven holiness. The life God wants for you is marked by spirit-driven holiness. Now, before we really get on to what that is, we've got to understand what I'm talking about when I say spirit-driven holiness. When I say the word holiness, we see that in verse 3. What do we see? We see Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right off the bat, Paul says, God has a plan for your life. God has a desire for your life, God's will for your life. The the thing is, we often think of God's will, though, in terms of big decisions in life, right? We think of God's will in terms of uh, what college to go to, what career to have, who we should marry, um, uh, how many kids we should have, what house we should buy. We think of God's will in terms of those things. God's what, God, what is your will for, for this particular thing in my life? But Paul, before he says we can move to any kind of big question like that, we, God gives us something before all of that. 
It says God's will is your sanctification. That's a word that's going to need uh, defining. God's will is your sanctification. Uh, uh, Later on in the passage, the word sanctification also is the word that's used for holiness. This idea of us, believers in Jesus, becoming holy. Now that word holy, we don't really use necessarily in terms of uh, uh, today like it's used in the Bible. We might say holy cow, you know, holy mackerel, holy moly. Never understood what a moly is, but holy moly, we say it nonetheless. We use the term holy, but often not as the term is used in Scripture. So when Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, he's saying this, this is God's will. The will of God is that you continually grow In the process, that's, excuse me, you continually grow in your spiritual growth into God-like character. Now, now we could could define sanctification in a lot of different ways. We might say um, that sanctification is the process of spiritual growth to be like Jesus. The idea that we are growing continually and intentionally in Christ-like character. Somebody else would define sanctification as this, devoted to Jesus and his teachings. Not only hearing what Jesus has to say, but what? Also doing what he says. But see, this is a process that doesn't just happen today. Like you don't go from, from lost to saved and all of a sudden you're, you're perfect. No. If you're a believer in Jesus, perfection only comes whenever you see Jesus one day in heaven, either when he comes back or when you go to see him from this earth. But there's this process we are on from the day that we come to know Jesus until the day we see him where we are continually growing to be more like him, to get to know him in relationship. And that is a process. It's not a day long. It's not a week long process. It's not a year long process. It is a lifetime of growing of setbacks, of struggling, of getting through something, of bearing godly fruit, that is sanctification, continually growing to be more like Jesus. Think about the idea of a fruit. Like you don't, you don't plant a seed, an apple seed, and the next day like you have this apple that, that, that is hanging off the tree that you can just go and eat. No, you plant a seed and over time the tree grows and then over time um, that fruit is produced from that tree. But it happens over time. It's the same way with us growing into godly character. It happens over time. Paul says this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you continually grow in relationship with Jesus. There's other scripture texts that go along with this. Romans 8.29 says... For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's our goal, to be conformed to the image of his son, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image. That's our goal. Paul says, this is the will of God. Before you make any decisions regarding practicalities, God's will is that you continually grow in your relationship with him day by day. That's God's will. That's his desire for you. That's his desire for me. That's his goal for your life. But Paul... Though he's going to be talking about holiness, sanctification, this process of of growing spiritually continually more and more day by day. He's going to zero in on a topic here. He's going to zero in on a topic um, that he's going to be addressing. We don't really know uh, the particular situation of why Paul's addressing this. 
Like we don't know why he goes toward this, but obviously he's heard something from Timothy and heard something from some other guys about a situation that's going on in the Thessalonian church. So Paul is going to address a situation that was crucial for his culture, but is also crucial in the 21st century. It's crucial today. Paul's going to address that. See, Thessalonica is a happening place. A lot of different people, a lot of different uh, cultures meeting. You have people who are rich, people who are poor, people who are are educated, people who are not, people who uh, have an idea of morality, but also a lot of people who uh, don't have any sense of morality, especially sexual morality. And Paul is about to address that topic. But this topic that he's talking about in this book wasn't just good back in the first century. It's good today. Because the same thing he's talking about is is something that we deal with today in America. You see, Paul says that you need to be continually growing in your walk with God every day. It's a process. But it's something he wants to talk about, and it's specifically this idea of sexual immorality. So uh, Paul says, while sanctification, it's, it, that's God's will, while it's more than just what you do with your body, growing um, personally in your walk with God has more than just what he's talking about. He's zeroing in on this topic, and that's what we're going to look at this morning for a few minutes. He's telling them, he says, hey, um, there's people who are coming into your church who are doing things with their bodies they shouldn't be doing. Because when they're coming out of the culture that they're in, um, they're not told what they should do with their body because they do with their body as they please. So he's saying, look, I've got to deal with something here. And based on scripture, we know that Paul's dealing with likely two situations. One, there's people in the church who are taking advantage, most specifically, uh, probably men taking advantage of women. Whether that be uh, having a mistress, whether that is uh, taking advantage of, of, of slaves or servants that they have. Or two, Paul's also addressing that there are people coming inside of the church, coming to know Jesus, but they're bringing this mindset of the culture saying, hey, we can do with our body as we please because that's what's all right outside of here. And Paul's saying, no, we've got to address something right here. The culture says, do with your body, not just then, but the culture today says, do with your body what pleases you because it's yours. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, no, do with your body what pleases God if you're a Christian because it's his So when he says that, he's saying, we've got to talk about something here. The life God wants for you, the life that pleases him, is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain there means to hold back, to be distant from, to run away from, to get out of there, to run like your hair is on fire. Do whatever you got to do, but stay away from sexual immorality. So what is sexual immorality? What, what is that? It's any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, what could that be? That could be premarital sex. That could be extramarital sex. That could be um, pornography. Anything that is outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman, Paul says, run away from. Abstain. Keep away from it. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Because God has created the idea of sex. God created it. It's his creation. He's created to be used in the right context. And the right context is between marriage, between a man and a woman, in a monogamous relationship. 
And I know to, to maybe some of you or specifically outside of our church in, 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 in the 21st century culture, we, the question will be asked, doesn't that sound kind of old? Doesn't that sound um, kind of closed-minded or bigoted? Like the idea that God has given sexual desires, but then he says, whoa, 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 don't use them. You got to use them the way I said to use them. What, doesn't that sound like, some people might say that sounds a little bit bigoted. That sounds a little bit old school. But the fact is God placed that boundary of sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage for our safety and for our good. See, we see that why uh, we, we all, now teenagers, you think you don't like boundaries, but we all love boundaries, right? We, 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 might, we, might, we don't like rules that kind of go against something we want to do, but we all love boundaries. We all love rules. What's the main one that we probably like? We like when people drive within the context of what is good or right. We love that. While we, we, we like the fact that there's a double yellow line right there that people don't just like come across anytime they want to. I remember when I was in Haiti, um, they have no driving regulations. So like I was, I was just sitting there and it was hot and we were driving and I had my arm out the window kind of doing that, you know, as, as you go by. And the nurse said, you might want to watch out. And all of a sudden there was this car like, right beside me that would have taken my arm off because there's no regulations. From then on out, I sat just like that inside of that vehicle the whole way. But you know what? We like boundaries. Why? Because those boundaries, specifically a driving or specifically laws that we have set in place, civil laws that we have, we like those because they keep us safe. We like those boundaries because they're actually meant for our good. So when God said marriage or that, that, that sexual relations should be between a man and a woman in monogamous marriage, he said, this is for your good. So we've got to get that our culture, you know, wants, uh, desires fidelity. They, uh, they desire emotional stability. Our culture, uh, desires, um, emotional security, all of which can be, uh, found in marriage and outside of marriage. Many times when, um, sexual immorality is present, we see, uh, people who are emotionally, uh, insecure, we see people who are, um, maybe can't commit to a relationship. We see people who suffer from guilt. We see people who suffer from unreal expectations, unexpected commitment, hurt, all of which we wish weren't a part of life. But when sexual relations are, or when sexuality is used outside of the context of marriage, that's often what it leads to. So Paul says, I want you to abstain from that because God's, the life that he wants for you isn't for you to suffer from hurt, from guilt, from emotional insecurity. No, God, God wants more for your life than that. For some of you this morning, maybe, maybe you have suffered or are suffering from some of those things because of decisions that you've made before. And Paul here, and I'm, and I'm the same, I'm, Paul's not coming down on you to say, look how bad you are. No, no, no. He's saying, look, I want you to, to, to keep away from those things because God has created you. God has saved you to live for so much more than the suffering, than the guilt, than the things that you're going through now that's been brought on by past sin. God has created you for so much more. And maybe for some of you this morning, it's somebody you need to go to. And you need to seek out their forgiveness. Maybe uh, you actually need to forgive someone because of a way they've wronged you. 
Um, you may be suffering from various things this morning. You need to seek help. You need to seek guidance. You need to seek accountability. And you're like, look, you know, I, I come here and I'm, I, I suffer from some things. I don't really know what to do. You know what? You can, you, if, if you don't know anybody inside of this church that you can talk to, you can always call the church and make an appointment with somebody because you're seeking guidance. You're seeking accountability. You want to change from something you're suffering from. So Paul says, how do we abstain from sexual immorality? He says, keep away from it. Keep away from it. But how do we do it? He says, learn or know. The text says, know how to control your own body. That literally means learn. Figure out where you struggle and address it. Figure out where you struggle and address it. That could be uh, setting up boundaries in your life. See, when we set up boundaries in our life, we're not just setting up boundaries for boundaries sake. To say like, hey, I'm going to set up a boundary so I don't go past that because uh, that one thing that, that I'm not supposed to do is bad. That's not the only reason we set boundaries. We set boundaries in our life because we're in pursuit of something more. We set boundaries because we're in pursuit of something more. So maybe you need to set up boundaries in your life. Maybe if you're single with, uh, with uh, someone you're seeing, maybe if you're a teenager, you need to set up boundaries and, and, and never ask the question, how far is too far? That's the wrong question to ask. The question should be, how far can I stay away from them? No, you, you may not need to ask that question. But you need to set up boundaries in your life that, that would keep you from um, giving in or keep you from falling to the sin of sexual immorality. Because Paul says, learn how to control your own body. Set up some things in your life that's going to keep you from veering off course. There's a guy I like to listen to out of uh, the Raleigh-Durham area, J.D. Greer. I shared this with the students a while back. Um, he, he, uh, when he was growing up, he was a teenager. His dad, his dad was named Lynn, and his dad uh, gave him four things. He called them Lynn's Laws. I already gave him four things. He said, you need to adhere to these things, and if you do, that you'll, you'll, you'll do well. Here's Lynn, here are Lynn's Laws. Nothing in the dark, nothing should last longer than five seconds, nothing below the chin, and never lie down. Like, like it's funny, but it's right. Like if we adhere to, if we were to listen to those and take those to heart, if you're dating somebody and you were to take those things to heart, then guess what? You're setting up a boundary right there that is going to help you from falling, going to keep you, that's going to help you abstain from sexual immorality, from doing something with your girlfriend or your boyfriend that you shouldn't do. So he says, learn, know how to control your own body. Why? Because when a Christian doesn't know how to control their own body, what does the text say? It says, we just look like people out in the world who don't know Jesus. We look like unbelievers when we don't know how to control our own body. This means teenager, college student, single person. When, when you take advantage of a, of a brother or sister in Christ, you're taking advantage of, of God's daughter for one. But you're not showing her, you're not showing him what it means to follow Jesus. If you are a Christian and you then go and you take advantage of somebody outside of, uh, outside of the realm of the church who's not a believer, then you can in no way point them to Jesus. Paul's saying, learn, know how to control your own body. Parents, your, uh, your, one of your primary responsibilities is to guard who your teenager dates. Like, like it's yours. I know you, you might think, hey, I want them to be able to, to experience uh, or, or to date somebody, to, fi- to kind of figure out uh, who, they, who they like or who they don't like. Let me just say this. If they date somebody, specifically somebody who's not a believer, don't expect that person to have the same mindset regarding sex that you do. 
So it's your job to guard who they date. But then Paul gives us three motivations to keep it away from sexual immorality. He gives us three. Verse 6, he says, the Lord will avenge. Think about that for a second. It says, the Lord will avenge. Guys, that is so much worse than your girlfriend's six foot four inch Navy SEAL dad walking in on you. It says God himself will avenge someone who is wronged. So Paul uses a motivation of fear. He says, look, he said, if you don't abstain from this and you continue in the lifestyle that you are living, God will eventually avenge the wrong that you are doing, the wrong that you are causing somebody else to do. He uses another motivation. Verse 7. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. His second motivation is you are called to so much more. If you're sitting in this room this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you are called not just to stay away from sin. You are called to live a life that is on, in pursuit of godliness. In pursuit of knowing Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus died and he died on the cross for your sin, he took all your impurity. He took all your imperfection. And he, he took that on himself so that when you trust in him and when you believe in him, he takes his righteousness, he takes his perfection, and he clothes you with those things. Not so you can go back to a life of impurity, so that you can live a life of so much more. That's what God desires for you. That's what God desires for me. Not that we fall back into impurity that we were saved from, but that we continue into holiness because that's what we're saved to. He then tells us another thing. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit. Paul says, whoever disregards this doesn't disregard what I'm saying, But if you don't take to heart what this is saying, you're not just neglecting Paul. You're not just neglecting me. You're you're neglecting what God is saying. Think about that. It says God will avenge. God has saved you for so much more. But we, we live a life abstaining from setting boundaries in our life, keeping away from sexual immorality. Why? Because God has said to do that. And what does it say God does? It said God gives his Holy Spirit. If, if we are able, and I know right now you're probably thinking, so Adrian, so far, this has been nothing about spirit-driven holiness. This has been all about what I do. We're about to get to the, the idea of spirit-driven holiness. But if we are not able to, to learn or know how to control our own bodies, there in no way can we pursue godliness. But Paul tells us this. He says, the Holy Spirit is the reason we can live godly. The Holy Spirit is the reason we can Pursue a relationship with Jesus to grow more and more every day. He's the whole reason in the first place. The Holy Spirit compels us. The Holy Spirit drives us. The Holy Spirit moves us along in our relationship with Jesus. About to use two analogies here for the Holy Spirit. I know probably they can fall short at some point. So just go with me on this because I think any analogy regarding Holy Spirit, the Trinity, anything like that is going to fall short. But think about this for a second. You can sit in your car. Or you can sit in your car and you can go out and you can turn the wheel, you know, as, as much as you want to. You can try to put it in gear. You can try to uh, match the gas pedal. But guess what? If there is no gas in the tank, what are you going to do? You're going to sit there and you're just going to keep turning the wheel going nowhere. But when there is gas in the tank, then when you're driving down the road, what, what's compelling that car forward? The gasoline. 
I know there's probably a lot of other stuff compelling it forward. I know. But like there's, there's uh, the gasoline's propelling that car forward. You're making some decision. You know, you're turning the blinker on. You're putting it in gear. You're switching gears. You're mas- mashing the gas pedal. You're turning the wheel. You're making some decisions. But the one thing propelling that car forward is the gasoline. The Holy Spirit, in a very similar way, is what enables us to live lives of godliness. The Holy Spirit doesn't uh, control us and like, like take hold of us and like we have no choice in the matter in our life. No, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that just like gasoline doesn't run the car for you. But gasoline compels the car forward. The Holy Spirit enables you to make decisions. It empowers you. It gives you uh, new directions so that you can then abstain from sexual immorality, know how to control your own body, and live lives in pursuit of of godliness. I was going to use another illustration. I don't think I want to now. So Paul says, or we might have the question, excuse me, that, okay, so are you saying it's the Holy Spirit's job in our, in our godliness? Like, like the Holy Spirit is what causes us to be godly? Or are you saying it's us making decisions that propel us forward in our walk with God? I think the answer to that question is yes. Both. What does Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says? Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you to the work and the will of his good pleasure. Romans 8, the whole chapter of Romans 8 says, uh, put to death deeds of the flesh because the spirit is empowering you to do so. Ephesians 4 says, put off the old self and put on the new. Talking to us about things we got to do. 2 Peter 1 says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with self-control. And it goes on down the list. So there's, there's a part that we have to play. But then Colossians 1.29 says that we can never forget that it is God working in us to be able to do these things. Therefore, it's God working in you. The Holy Spirit empowers you to live the life that God desires. How does he do that? He exposes sin. He, um, he allows you to live out what the word says. He uh, gives you a, a new direction and a new mindset where you're focused on Jesus. And when you're focused on Jesus and, you, and, and you're walking toward him, the Holy Spirit uh, brings to mind things that you should do, brings to mind things that you uh, shouldn't do. But it's not just that you sit back and you just let it happen. No, you take part in it, but it's the Holy Spirit who's enabling you to do so. Talked to a guy somewhat recently, and uh, before he was a believer in Jesus, he, he was addicted to pornography. Just, just straight up addicted to it. And uh, when he gave his life to Christ, he, he said, like, just like that, like that, that desire went away. And he said, you know, he said, it was so weird because when that, when, when I got saved and, and God, like I was a new creation, the desire to watch that desire to take part in anything like that was completely gone. And it was replaced with new desires that God was giving him. Now I know those kind of situations where, you know, somebody gets saved and something in their life completely changes and they never look back. Those situations I, I think are rare. Because most of the time, and maybe like you, you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know, Adrian, like I was struggling with stuff before I came to know Jesus or before I I got my life right with God. And I'm still struggling with those things now. So, so what am I to do? 
Like, what do I do? Because um, I, I, I don't have, just like the guy you're talking about, my desires didn't completely change. What do I do? Then we have to understand this. I said earlier, sanctification, the process of growing, is a continual process. It's a continual process of, of, of you doing your part and saying, you know what, I'm going to establish boundaries. I'm going to... Um, Set up somebody that I can talk to that's going to hold me accountable. But it's also God's spirit working in you to grow you toward that. To grow you toward a life of godliness. So um, chances are, if you struggle with some kind of uh, something that's sexually immoral. Like if, if you were to pray right now and say, God, take that away from me. Then I'm just going to guess chances are it's not going to be just like that and it's gone. But if you pray and you're like, God, my desire is to get rid of this and I want to get rid of whatever I'm struggling with so bad, like I want it gone. Then what are you probably going to do? You're going to take a little bit of action to do what? To try to establish boundaries. Maybe it's going to be to go confess to somebody what you're struggling with and ask them to hold you accountable. Because if you truly want to be rid of something that you're doing sexually or not, if you want to be rid of something you are doing, you're not just going to sit there and say, God, I'm ready for you to change me. No, you're going to take part in it and say, God, I so want this to change that I'm going to do whatever it takes on my part and trust that you enable me to get through whatever it is I'm facing. Why? Because if you're sick and, and, and you want to see the doctor, you can call the doctor and make an appointment. But if you don't actually go to the doctor after that, then calling the doctor and making an appointment was for no good. Right? So we do our part and hope and pray and know, not just, not just uh, maybe will it happen, know that God will compel us forward, enable us to do and to live the way he's called us to live. So for some of you this morning, you need to just seek God's help. Just simply pray, God, like, here's the deal. I'm struggling with this, and I want to overcome this so badly. Then your next step may be, like I said, seeking out somebody. God has given us the gift of his people. See, each of you in here, if you're a believer, you're a gift to another believer. God has given you um, his people to be a gift. You need to confess. Find somebody to hold you accountable in a certain situation. Begin to memorize scripture. Begin to memorize scripture. Now, now, while that won't solve everything, um, if you're in a situation that's going to be a very tempting situation and the last thing that you listened to was some song off the radio that was pathetic, that's probably what's going to come to your mind. But if you've been putting God's word inside of your heart, and you, for one, you, you may stay a little bit further from those situations, but when you get in it and God's word, the Holy Spirit reminds you of what you've been memorizing, that's such a help. Because God has his word. Maybe you need to do the work of cultivating the work of the Holy Spirit. That might just be saying, you know what? I'm going to set aside time this week to begin praying five minutes a day to say, God, like, I want, I want you to show me. I want to be a part of you changing my life and you take initiative in, in doing those things. But one of, the, one of the best motivations I think we can have. One of the best motivations I think we can have in living a godly life in pursuit of Jesus often gets overlooked. Because oftentimes the motivation to overcome sin, uh, we focus on that sin so much that that's the only thing we think about. We think about that sin because we, oh, we want to overcome that sin. 
So the one thing on our mind constantly is that sin and trying to overcome it. But what I think we need to do sometimes is have a greater vision for our lives simply than just overcoming that sin. And that greater vision is fixing our eyes on Jesus saying, you know what? I want to grow to become so much more like him that some of these things that I struggle with, yeah, I still may struggle, but they're going to go to the wayside because I'm not going to focus on them. I'm going to focus on the pursuit of who I'm trying to be like. When our vision becomes so, when our vision of Jesus becomes so great, some of those things that we struggle with, then we'll be able to let go of through the power of his people, through the power of his spirit, through the power of his word. Because our vision is not focused on just simply overcoming the sin. Our vision is focused on the gospel, the fact that Jesus died in our place for us, and we're trying to be like him. It's like some of you this year probably had a New Year's resolution. I never set those because about the time of sixth grade, when I thought I'd be an NFL player, I realized that wasn't going to happen. All right, so never set New Year's resolution, but some of you do. Let's just say some of you set a New Year's resolution. You said, I'm going to stop smoking. Then you know what? You may be able to put that away for a couple of days. But eventually you're focusing so much on saying, I don't want to smoke, that all of your time and energy is focusing on what? Those cigarettes, cigarettes, or cigarettes, or whatever, or whatever, or whatever it is you're smoking. But guess what? You have a, 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 if your New Year's resolution... Is to say, hey, you know what, this year I want to climb Mount Everest. That's my resolution. And guess what? Your vision is so much more greater than those cigarettes that after a few weeks of training, you're going to say, I can't do that because I won't be, I won't be able to achieve my vision if I keep smoking. So I'm going to put those aside because I have something greater in mind. And in the same way, sometimes we focus on sin so much that that's all we think about. When we need to be focusing on becoming more like Jesus and some of those sins will then fall away. Because our focus is on something else other than just simply overcoming our sin. Our focus is on God's will for our life, which is that we continually, continually grow. So Paul says, I want you to abstain from sexual immorality. I want you to put that stuff away. He said, because that's the life God wants for you. But then he switches gears. So we went from, that's personal holiness. Like this idea of you growing continually. Then he switches gears in verse 9. He says, first, God's will is that God's, the life God wants for you is marked by spirit-driven holiness. That you pursue that. But then secondly, God, the life God wants for you is marked by others-focused love. Now, I, I want you to know there's two points this morning. And I know that first one took about 30 minutes. This one won't take near as long. All right? I just want you to know that so you're not sitting there worried about that. But he switches gears here and says this. He says, finally, brothers... Concerning brotherly love, I have no need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. You indeed are doing and loving all the brothers around Macedonia, and just keep on doing it. Paul's telling them, he says, look, he says, I've heard about how much you're loving each other, and I just want you to know, keep loving each other. Why? Because that's what Jesus uh, said in John 13. He said, the world, the outside world will know your love for me by your love for each other. So Paul says, keep uh, loving each other. How had he heard about it? He had heard about it because their love obviously was put into action. There were people who had needs. Well, guess what? The people who had needs, guess what the church did? The church took care of those people that had needs. Within the church, outside of the church. They were showing their love. You see, love is uh, not just this, this word that we use or just this feeling that we have. Love is a commitment. A commitment within the church to care for and be generous to people. 
Paul says, I've heard about your love for each other, how you're committed to each other, how you're caring for each other. And I want to say, just keep doing that. Because the life God wants for you is where you're committed to people inside of this fellowship and inside the body of Christ. God desires that. That's why we do benevolence. To help people here, to help people outside of here. That's why um, Infuge comes down every summer. And we love people uh, in this community and we do it through the local church. That's why uh, we love each other in a Bible fellowship or a life group. Let me just say this. If you're not part of a group and, and you come every Sunday and you want to be able to experience brotherly love, like real love for one another in a greater way, then you need to be a part of a group because that's where you're going to experience it the most. Being a part of a group here at Grace. But Paul, he, he gives us a purpose for why we do this. He gives us a purpose in verse 12. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Before that, he says, listen, um, <clears throat> I want you to mind your own affairs. I want you to, uh, to, to, to live in such a way that gains respect from outsiders. What's he saying? It's very, very, very practical application from the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I want you to, to live lives in your community, in society, to be upstanding, respectable people. I want you to, to not meddle in other people's stuff, but I want you to, to live uh, your life in a responsible way where you're good uh, business people, where you're good husbands, where you're good wives, where um, you, you help your society, you help your community by educating people, by taking care of people medically, by loving people in your community, all of which those things don't necessarily sound explicitly Christian. But Paul's saying the reason why they are is because when you live a life and you're someone who's an upstanding member of a community and you love people within your church and you don't talk about them, but instead you love them and you serve within your church and you're somebody who's respected and somebody who people know to be a person of integrity, what does that do? Verse 12 tells us it gains an audience so that somebody will be willing to hear the gospel. Verse 12, Paul tells us that. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Paul's whole goal, his why in life, his desire life, his purpose in life is he wants people to come to know Jesus in the same way that he has, in the same way that many of you have. And he says the way that you, uh, the, the way that you, you do things with your body, the way that you love people within the church, the way that you're respected among outsiders, guess what? That's going to make a difference on whether or not people will be willing to listen when you share the gospel with them. The life that you live in front of people, the influence that you have because of the specific life you live, that should cause you, this idea of thinking about what kind of person am I in front of people, should cause you to think, would somebody be willing to hear the gospel from my mouth based on how I present myself and how I live? Have I gained respect? Have I gained an audience because of the way that I live so that outsiders would be willing to listen to my message? would be willing to hear what I've got to say. You see, Paul had that in mind, and he wants us to have the same mind. Why? Because God had that same mind. God had that same mind. Why? God was, was in heaven, and he looked down, and he saw people who were imperfect, people who were unholy, people um, who, who did not care for him, people who did not care for each other. And he said, you know what? I can't leave them there like that. 
I can't do it. So God's why, God's purpose in, in coming to this earth, he said, look, I don't want to leave them there unholy, imperfect, headed for hell. I want to save them from that. So God was so compelled to change the course of human history that he came to this earth and he died for your sin and for mine because he wanted outsiders. That's us. That's people who were once lost, now saved. He wanted us to know about his love. And Paul is saying, look, people of the church, I want people outside of the church, people who are unbelievers to know about God's love so much that it should affect and change what you do with your body. It should change how you, how you act around people and it should change everything you do because we want people to hear the gospel. Easter's coming up. Easter's coming up. Jerry's already mentioned it um, with some people you can be praying for and cards that you can hand out people you can invite This is a prime opportunity for the next several weeks. If you're like, look, you know, over the course of time and my job, I've let a few things go. And and, and the way I talk, the way I act around some people has changed. Then, 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 like, not all is lost. God's calling you this morning to, to change that today. Like, you don't have to keep going in the same lifestyle that you're in. If you don't, if the Spirit is telling you, hey... Don't keep doing that or, or change the way that you're talking, change the way you're acting. You can do that today. You can change that today. So over the next several weeks, over the next several months, you can gain an audience with people so that they'll be willing to hear the good news of Jesus whenever you have an opportunity to share that with them. Paul says two main things today that I want us to walk out of here with. God has a life he wants for us, and that's a life that's in pursuit of him, a life that is this continuous process of growing in relationship with him. And we do that by spirit-driven holiness, the way that we uh, control our body, the way that we control the things we say, how we act personally, the way we control what we do, and then secondly, by how we love people first within the church, And then secondly, how we love people around us based on how we live. What we say and then how we live. So this morning, I'll just ask if you bow your head. We're not going to sing this morning. I want us to take a moment. Paul was very clear that the Holy Spirit, God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. So I want you to just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit right now. Maybe he already has. Um, maybe it'll be when you get home. Maybe whenever. But I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now. Holy Spirit, what, what are some things or something specifically in my life that you need to point out?